Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Maffedon. Thanks for tuning in. Young minds and community leaders gathered at the newly renovated Roxbury Branch Library to spread the word about literacy. I am, am so intelligent. So intelligent. The day was all about children's literacy, but youth enjoyed the extra perks of song and affirmations at the Witherspoon Institute's Get Lit event at Roxbury Branch Library. Wednesday was the Boston launch of the Institute's five-city book band tour, which kicks off monthly interactive Win Kids book clubs in libraries and black-owned bookstores. The National Literacy Initiative, Get Lit, encourages young people to ignite their light, read, write, get lit, as it addresses the racial learning gaps exacerbated by two years of remote learning. This is a post-COVID learning crisis initiative. It's specifically geared towards helping children get acclimated with literacy. Uh, we have found that the literacy rates are down even more so before COVID. We have found that it's ex exponentially down. Harvard University did this huge study across the nation and it talked about it having disparities between racial and economic lines. And so we want to make sure that communities were made aware that this really is an issue that is not a figment of your imagination. It's something that we as a community need to address as a whole. For National Literacy Chair Attorney Joseph D. Feaster Jr., it's crucial that child education not be contained to the classroom, and it starts with the library and the entire community. We have to take our children's learning outside of what they may be learning in the classroom. This is a place where you do additional learning, you do additional research, you find things and issues that you like and love. This is an opportunity for we as adults to help with that whole, that whole transition in the sense of uh, uh, bolstering the educational opportunities for these young people. So the program that we're talking about today is, is an opportunity in order to do that. And my hope is that we will be successful, that we can uh, not do this in a singular sense, but in a collaborative sense. Speakers engage kids with games and icebreakers before sharing some of the consequences of illiteracy. I am the chair of education here for the city of Boston. I'm also the chair of workforce development. And in my time in office, um, what I realized is that, you know, a lot of the work that I did was around dismantling the school to prison pipeline. Because what I learned when I was doing education advocacy is that a lot of our kids were struggling to read and write. But that was not an issue that was being identified when they were being kicked out of school. Attendees bonded over books in reading circle breakout sessions led by book lovers and city leaders, all realizing how reading creates possibilities and the transformative power of the library, a life-affirming space. I hope that not only will we expose them to reading, but back to this notion of libraries. Libraries were the things that saved me as a child because I could go on journeys in my mind, my mental models of the world were prepared by those books that I read. And I could, my imagination just sort of, just went to new heights. And so I've been all over the world in my imagination and now to be able to do it as an adult connect all those things, I understand the power of that kind of intellectual exchange. So that's what we want for these children today. I believe it's a cycle because the desire to learn 
breeds literacy. Literacy expands your desire to learn. And as that cycle builds, it creates a strength in you, not only confidence, but knowledge and understanding about how you're going to move forward and the ability to create and imagine where you're headed and to be able to do that with others. Reading is like music. You can do it together. You can read the same book. You can read it at the same time. You can reflect on it together. And this builds skills for communication, but it also helps us really think about who we are, to know our past, to understand our future. So uh, literacy is at the center of so much um, in, in, in developing ourselves as people and developing our culture and really bringing equity to this nation in a way we haven't experienced it yet. On Tuesday, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and her team brought victims of traumatic experiences to the forefront to discuss the necessity of supporting the mental health of disaster survivors. A huge win for mental health and individuals who deal with the long-term effects of trauma. On Tuesday, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley visited Harvard Street Neighborhood Health to discuss the Post-Disaster Mental Health Response Act passed in December 2022. The act expands support for survivors of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, and acts of mass violence. These emergencies lead to lasting trauma for individuals, families, and communities, even though the effects may not be visible to the eye. My hope is that, you know, for people going forward, they won't go through the kinds of things that I did, which is, you know, having to look for services and, and having doors closed in my face saying, you know, because you don't have physical wounds, we're not going to help you. So my hope is that going forward for people after disasters or terrorist attacks like this, um, we'll be able to get that support and we'll not have to have those doors closed in their face. I get triggered by little things that you wouldn't know were triggering. PTSD, there's, it's an invisible injury, it's an invisible disease. There's nothing to look at so people don't understand, well, what do you need help with? This act would provide me immediate prompt mental health services by professionals who understand PTSD, complex PTSD like mine, and what I need and why I need it, and give it to me when I need it. FEMA previously established the Counseling Assistance and Training Program, but that resource can only be received after a major disaster declaration, not smaller-scale disasters that receive lower-grade emergency declarations, which can include mass shootings and acts of terrorism. This loophole, coupled with not understanding the weight of emotional pain, meant many who needed help were on their own. But now, times are changing. Oftentimes, anything related to behavioral health or mental health is, is overlooked because there's a certain stigma in uh, today's uh, society that frowns upon seeking uh, help in that regard. Uh, it's unfortunate. I think it's changing. Uh, this bill will go a long way in helping to change that so that uh, it is not uh, frowned upon moving forward and people will get the help that they need. There are physical wounds, um, there are invisible wounds, and everyone is deserving of a pathway to healing and access to mental and behavioral health services. Whether you're talking about domestic terrorism, a natural disaster, community-based violence, sexual assault, whatever it is, whatever you're a survivor of uh, as the result of some traumatic, disruptive life happening, uh, everyone is deserving of healing. City Life Vita Urbana continues to be on the front lines in the fight for affordable housing, and their rally on the Jamaica Plain border kept the momentum going. What do we want? Yes, 
People over profit was the sentiment at the Donovic Negotiate Rally on the corner of Perkins Street and Parkment Drive by Jamaica Pond. Protesters are tired of the all-too-common evictions and displacement of working-class families by corporate landlords. So more and more we have corporate landlords that are going into neighborhoods buying property just to flip just to flip them and they increase the rent five, six, seven hundred dollars without a care in the world as to the people that live there, the people that have been struggling to make a community and a life out of where they live. And that breaks the human spirit. People that are are working two jobs to get by, they're doing what they can to raise a family and still have a good life. And you come in here and you just break that spirit for them because of greed. Members of the Bradley Road Tenant Association from Medford and Greater Boston allies, including City Life, Vita Urbana, brought their housing battle to the private gates of Jason and Melanie Savage, corporate owners of Savage Properties, all in an effort to make the landlords feel a touch of the discomfort their evicted tenants have experienced. I mean, the level of stress that our communities endure is just reprehensible. And that stress, knowing that you could be evicted at any time, no fault, and be put out of your home. And why are you being evicted, no fault, to be put out of your home? Because some real estate corporation thinks they can profit by putting you out of your home. And that's just plain wrong. Married couple Kristen and Amanda Welliver are the last household remaining at 22 to 26 Bradley Road in Medford. So far, the Wellivers' demands for collective bargaining negotiations and compensation for displaced former tenants have gone ignored. It's shocking to me that landlords can be so selfish to only care about their, their dollar. They don't care about U.S. people. They don't care where you're going to go when they give you a 30-day notice. They don't care that you can't afford to move. They just, they just want you out so that they can make a few cheap renovations on the place that you've called home for 14 years and they can charge, you know, hundreds of dollars more in rent. I don't know how anyone can sleep at night when they do that. Currently, the Tenant Association has collected over 600 signatures calling for Savage Properties to negotiate with tenants. Nevertheless, tenants are ready to continue the fight in court this March at their eviction trial and they will not back down. When we have a large property owners coming in and raising rents and displacing people, it is extremely detrimental to our community and our whole society. We need uh, residents to be able to have the dignity and respect of a st stable home, and we need tools to be able to address that. And you know, our community and our society are incredibly harmed when families are ripped away from their homes and their networks and the people that they love. The 44th Women's Beanpot earlier this February pitted Boston University against Northeastern University. Despite BU's loss, we take a look at how the BU band has a historic tradition of keeping a lively atmosphere, win or lose. BNN's Kevin Boulondier has more. This is more than a group of students playing instruments. The 120-member group makes signs, creates chants, and cheers on the Terriers at every home game. <laughs> Hockey player Claire O'Leary is on her second year in the Bean Pot. She feels that the band is an integral part of their games. Being able to rely on them to come to all of our home games and come to the Bean Pot games is really, it's huge for us. They definitely add like an, another level of intensity and energy to every single game. The band has played on and off at home games since 2005 and have accompanied BU Sports at tournaments for over a decade. College hockey teams in Boston have gathered each February for the last 70 years for the traditional Beanpot Tournament. 
The band played at February 7th Beam Pop between Boston University and Northeastern. Band conductor Victoria Paspalis says the band plays off the momentum of the game, choosing their songs based on the game's direction. So during any stoppage and play at a women's ice hockey game, you're going to hear the BU band. Uh, we'll choose our songs based on where the game is at. You know, are we up for nothing? Are we down by a goal or two? That'll help uh, us decide what songs we're going to play and, you know, how exactly we're going to use our music to rally up the team and the fans. Boston University professor of music Jason Eust says the songs played by the band create an excitement and a connection between fans and the arena and the players. I think in... I think it makes a lot of sense then in sporting events that um, like kind of bright up-tempo music that increases your arousal level, but also enhances your social bonding with the people around you because everybody is um, in training to this same rhythm together. Clara Larry says there's no one like the BU band. It sort of brings like another level of like camaraderie within the building, especially at Walter Brown. Every single game, having them be there and know that we're going to have like that reliable fan base and um, the energy that they can bring to the rink is something that we can't get from anybody else. The director says the band arrives an hour early before the home games here at Walter Brown Arena to rehearse. Reporting from Boston, I'm Kevin Bolandier for BNN. Mayor Wu's newly appointed reparations task force is taking on a large task, studying the legacy of slavery in Boston and what reparations looks like for those negatively impacted by the systemic racism of our society. Task force members, attorney Joseph D. Feaster Jr. and Carrie Mays joined us in studio. Both are giants in the social justice world and their contributions to the black community is astounding. Mays is one of the youth individuals who organized the 2020 George Floyd protests through Boston. Mr. Feaster has been a long-established community leader and champion of advocacy for those who are at a disadvantage in our system. We discuss what reparations means for Boston and how they plan to change our system for the better. I'd love to start the conversation um, talking about slavery. Slavery, it ended in 1865, and we were then ushered into the Reconstruction era. What are some of the main differences between Reconstruction and reparations, and what exactly would you say that reparations entail? Well, you know, some of us would take issue as to whether slavery ended in 1865, uh, simply because uh, Abraham Lincoln was, didn't have control of the self. Uh, at that particular point in time, and that's the reason why we have Juneteenth, because the folks in Texas didn't learn about it until two years later. But nonetheless, <laughs> we, we'll accept that 1865 was, but the Reconstruction period was a time where there was much advancement uh, for black people. Uh, we, there were lawyers, there were business persons, ex, uh, there were all types of trades, uh, and, and legislators even. Uh, during that period of time. And then at the end of the uh, Reconstruction period, getting towards the 19th century, excuse me, the 20th century, beginning of the uh, 20th century, that's when we brought it, uh, that, and I, you know, I don't want to be the historian here, but with the, the D Dixie Democrats, they made a, a, an arrangement because back then black folks were Republicans because of Abraham Lincoln, right. and they they cut a deal, and that's what and that started the ferment of the white citizen counter Ku Klux Klan and all of the things which took place during the early portions of the 20th century. 
fast forward to where we are now, uh, one reason for reparations is because our folks, black people, were forced by slavery in order to be able to work without compensation. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, uh, we are now talking about reparations are, and we're saying that because of that, and some of that continued beyond just during the time of slavery because we still had the anti-discrimination laws, we had the redlining, we had uh, all of these things which, uh, the denial of the VA loan, FHA, all of these things that took place uh, continued and therefore we were disenfranchised, uh, de devalued and unpaid. Mm -hmm. And we're saying now, we need to examine that and determine because of what was done to our ancestors, whether my family and Carrie's family and all should be the beneficiaries of some, some type of reparations. Absolutely. And earlier this month, Mayor Wu announced Boston's Reparation Task Force. Um, looking around the country, uh, California was the first state to uh, put together a reparations task force in 2021. We also, um, as, we, as you mentioned earlier, there's the National African Americans Reparations Commission, a larger entity. Uh, what are you taking away from their processes? And what do you hope that future task forces could take away from Boston's team. Well, I would, you know, I'm going to ask Carrie to talk about that from her perspective. I'll talk about it as the chair of the task force, but I would like to, you know, have Carrie answer that because she definitely has an opinion on that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, I think for me, um, as I've said before, I believe that this is an opportunity for Boston to serve as a national model for the country, as well as um, I'm a huge believer in not reinventing the wheel, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if there's a an opportunity for strategic collaboration or to learn from e each other, um, especially on the West Coast, I love the West Coast. I'm also from the East Coast, so how can we um, strategically use some of the strategies and the processes that are happening on the West Coast, um, as well as the the East Coast to, to bring a stronger force to how do we truly bring about reflective um, reconciliation in a way that is holistic um, when it comes to, because slavery was a global and national phenomenon, right? Yeah. It did not just happen on the East. It did not just happen on the West. This was throughout the whole entire country. So this needs to be a national conversation. And I'm thankful that California has started the process. And I'm very excited to start the process here um, in Boston, Massachusetts. Graham? You know, and just to echo that, I mean, not only is California, Everson, Illinois, Providence, Rhode Island, um, Atlanta has just uh, uh, funded their task force, as you mentioned and, and Carrie alluded to. There's a national effort in terms of the National African American Reparations Commission. In fact, it was a global. It was a global conference in Bogota, Colombia, in uh, December. So. This issue is not new. It may be new for the conversation for Boston, and I just want to say publicly on behalf of the entire task force, we thank the Boston City Council, and we thank Mayor Wolf for, for being courageous enough in order to do it. Uh, and so we're tasked with it, uh, with the responsibility of bringing forward a report, and we plan to be uh, inclusive. We plan to be uh, intentional, hmm. uh, and we uh, plan to be able to reach out and hear from many, many voices. 
Wonderful. And one of the beautiful things about the task force is the, the range that it covers in terms of the people and the experiences and the voices that are coming to the forefront. Uh, and I'm curious, for the average black young person in Boston, how will this uh, task force affect the change in the life that they can see? Yes. Um, so one, this means a lot to me as a young um, black woman, especially somebody who is of African descent of slavery. Um, my great, great, great grandmother was a slave from mm -hmm. Alabama. And so um, to me, I think this is about this is a learning experience for me as a young person to learn about my history, because unfortunately, our school systems throughout the whole entire country is not truly reflecting, um, you know, the travesties and the depth of what slavery was and also just what also what happened before slavery. And so as we see this national fight for a critical race theory and just for our humanity to be heard in our curriculums, for our humanity to be recognized, I think this is a learning experience for me as a young black person, but also for, you know, my sisters, my brothers, um, and for a lot of people my age for us to really examine some of the historical harms that has happened, but not how the historical harms have affected us, but also how can we heal those harms, right? And a lot of people say that young people are the future. You cannot um, have a successful movement or talk about the future without including young people. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about the Children's March of Birmingham, which was a catalyst for desegregation across the whole entire country, um, young people have served to be this morality staple of the country and shown us um, how to mobilize movements. And so for me, I think I'm thankful for Mayor Wu and I'm thankful for the city council for making this an intergenerational effort because it can't just be adults and it can't just be young people, but it must be youth and adults working together to make this collective change. When we come back from the break, we discuss the importance of black leadership and why young voices need to be heard. Even though we didn't grow up together, he's my favorite brother. Hey, sis. I'm the baby of the family, and he's the gentle giant. What you know about poor George? Man, please, that's a classic. You know when they say people are a rare breed? Yeah, he's that. I'm sorry, I'll be back in a few hours. Don't worry, Shag, you know I'm for you. I know. Go get the football. That was my favorite memory. He was always for you. This is a true story of me, Bridget Floyd, and this guy, George Perry Floyd Jr., my big brother. In terms of um, this first year and the conversations that are beginning, what are some of the, the main goals that you have on the list? What are you hoping to get done in this first year? Well, let me talk about that for a moment. And I, and I just want to say, Faith, you can see why Carrie's on this committee. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, and the intergenerational one, I'm on the other end of that spectrum <laughs> that, uh, from Carrie. And I feel it's my responsibility to be that type of mentor. I want to be able to pass the torch to carry to take that type of leadership, um, you know, and I, I'm, you can see that she will be integral in terms of the conversation 
and the thinking that we have within the task force. So I'm, I'm, I'm feel blessed that um, the mayor had the foresight in order to have her on this committee. Uh, she's uh, definitely a, a, a morning star. Um, our responsibilities on the task force emanate from the ordinance that the Boston City Council created back last December, in which the mayor signed on to. And it creates the number, the members of the task force, uh, which there are 10 of us. It creates, there are three phases. Uh, our term is until December of 2024. Uh, there are three phases. And one of the first things we're going to do is what Carrie referred to. We're going to get, we're, we're going to issue an RFP to get a historian because we want to get the facts. We're going to start from the facts. Mm. Then we're going to be able to, we're going to go out in terms of listening tours. So we're going to have people give us the facts, give us the listening tour, obviously our own internal discussions as a task force. We'll, there's expectation in the ordinance that we produce something by June of this year. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. It depends upon how quickly we'll, we'll be meeting within the next week for our first meeting of the task force. And then at the end of the day, unless they extend our time, December 24th, our, our task force will, will end. But I want to leave you with at least, and this is feaster thinking because this isn't, we haven't met as a, as a commission. But I really think there are four questions that need to be asked on this question of reparations. One is, what is the debt? Mm. Yeah. So you get to determine. Uh, Carrie talked about his family, her family history from Alabama. Mine's from South Carolina. Hmm. You know, uh, 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 Fairfield, South Carolina, Winsboro, South Carolina, to to uh, Kings Mountain, North Carolina, to 117th Street in Harlem, New York, to the Bronx. Mm -hmm. So you know, so you you so you know, am I directly affected? Don't know, but in terms of my ancestors' work. The other question is, who is eligible for reparations? Yeah. We have to define that, uh, you know, and that's going to come through this process we're talking about. If we determine that, then we got to determine who pays. And the question is, what is pay? I mean, what, 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 will, what form will reparations take? When I say pay, I'm talking about reparations and in terms of what form it might take. And if you look at that National Commission I referred to, they have 10 points, and they refer to different things, and that may be some guidance for us. And then the last one is, if there's going to be reparations, and we determine what the amount is, and we determine who pays, when will it be paid? So we may not be the one to answer that meeting the task force, but I believe that those are the questions that will really need to be answered for us to get to the end point. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one of the things that I love about our process um, is that community engagement is a critical and crucial component of how we do this work. Um, considering a lot of the experience that I have had in community, and as Ayanna Presley says, the people closest to the pain need to be the closest to the power. Um, and I think in one of our, our second phase, it's community engagement. So that is where the expertise lies within our unique experiences and our unique stories and bringing other voices and amplifying those who are descendants of slavery or, or are experiencing systemic racism of which was um, inevitably tied to slavery. What does your experience look like? What does it look like to, to dream of a world where there is healing, where there is freedom, where um, 
you know, with compensation, right? What does it look like to, to us as a collective? So I think it's so important that we, we realize that this work is not just about the task force, that the mm-hmm. task force wants to work with the community and that this is going to be a collective effort of all of us. Um, you know, the reparations task force has been created because we need to establish, of course, some some sort of foundation on an institutional level or with the city to make sure that the work happens. But the true work we know happens um, through community and we are of the community as well. Thank you. That's what I was going to say. We are task force. We're of the community as well. So, you know, Carrie is uh, absolutely correct that uh, it, it is fundamental in our in our being mm. that we need to be able to have these listening sessions and to engage the community in this process. Thank you for tuning in, Boston. As a reminder, you can stream or watch the news on demand at bnnmedia.org. Each episode will be rebroadcast at 9.30 and 11 p.m. on Xfinity Channel 9, Astound Channel 15, and Fios Channel 2161. And make sure to check out our BNN HD Xfinity channel. 1072. You can also hear us on the radio Fridays at 6.30 and 9.30 p.m. and Monday through Thursday at 7.30 and 9.30 p.m. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mathedon. I'll see you next Friday.